Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. Go Law Enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Deputy Richard Diliberti is with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and has been on the SWAT team for 13 years. He now is a tactical medic accompanying the SWAT team on callouts. He's also a helicopter medic for the Sheriff's Department. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement podcast, he discusses two memorable SWAT callouts, one involving a husband who shot his wife and was holding their 13-month-old daughter hostage, another involving an individual who took multiple hostages at a barbecue restaurant. Deputy Diliberti also talks about when, as a helicopter medic, he and his partner responded to an event in the Angeles National Forest that earned them the life-saving award from California EMS. My name is Richard Diliberti. I am a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy. I've been working for the Sheriff's Department for 29 years. Started my career working in the jail after I graduated from the academy. Went on from the jails to work a patrol assignment in the South Central Los Angeles area. Did that for about eight and a half years. Pretty busy area down there. Got a lot of experience. And then from working patrol, I went on to testing for the SWAT team for Los Angeles County. I got accepted and took my assignment with the SWAT team in 2006. And I've been a member, a full-time member of the SWAT team from 2006 up to today. My choice for going into law enforcement is probably not what most people would expect it to be. I was working construction in Southern California uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And anybody who lives in the area would know that construction was thriving at the time. It started to slow down. There was a little bit of a recession kind of kicking in. And I wasn't really sure at that point what I wanted to do. I wasn't planning to go to college. I had already graduated from high school. I went right into working full time. So I ended up talking to my cousin, who is actually a lieutenant with the sheriff's department now assigned to the Homicide Bureau. He's a year and a half older than I am. And I ended up at his house at a barbecue. And he told me that he tested for the sheriff's department. And I really had no idea what the requirements would be. I didn't even know if it was something that I could even look into as an option. It was not a childhood dream. It was just, I thought, maybe this is something I could do. My family was in the military. Uh, I did not join the military, but I thought, well, this is something close to that. So I basically gathered up some information from him, and I went ahead and decided to test. Um, I talked to a few people. Seemed like an interesting job. It wasn't an office type of job, which does not 
attract my personality. I don't like to be stuck in one place. And I started testing for the sheriff's department when I was 19 and a half years old. And I went through the testing process pretty smoothly. And and then next thing I know, I was sitting in the academy before my 21st birthday. What a SWAT team is, the easiest way that I would say to describe it is it's a unit within a department that is staffed with personnel that are able to handle situations that go beyond conventional law enforcement capability. Most of the teams, in my experience, that are in and around the country are smaller part-time teams because the operational tempo doesn't support a full-time team. I'm very fortunate that working in Los Angeles and working for the Sheriff's Department, we handle on average 250 plus operations a year. We are a full-time team and this is basically all we do. We are constantly training and going out on operational deployments. The way SWAT teams are made up, they do vary from agency to agency. There is no cookie cutter way it's done. I can tell you that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department SWAT team, we have 48 full-time members. It's six teams, each consisting of eight deputies and one sergeant. The deputies are broken down by role definition. So starting at, we'll call it starting at the top, you have the scout of the team, and he is basically the leader of the team in the sense of when a tactical operation presents itself, the scout is responsible for coming up with the overall tactical plan to manage that problem. Below him is the backup scout. The backup scout much like it's called, is there in the event that the scout is not working that day for some reason, but he's also there to support the scout in making whatever plan they're going to come up with. Below that person is your fourth man, we call him, and he is the person that would generally respond to the command post area, which is where all of the support system kind of gathers. It's usually away from the target location. The fourth man is responsible for gathering information from from anyone, from patrol, from neighbors, from family members, any intelligence that we can gather about the place where we're going and the situation we're going in. It's that person's responsibility to respond to that command center and start gathering information and feeding it via radio to the team that is responding to the actual target location. And then below the fourth man is the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And there's no specific role for them. They're kind of your newer guys that are working their way up through the team. And then each team has a supervisor, a sergeant. That sergeant is obviously in charge because of his rank, but he more acts as kind of a liaison or a go-between between the team that's actually at the target and the administration that's at the command post. He's like kind of the buffer in between. We come up with a plan. We run it by the sergeant. Sergeant agrees to it. Plan gets run up the chain, so to speak. And then it kind of trickles back down. 
The sergeant is a member of the team. He does go on entries with us. He's a fully functioning SWAT guy. He's just a supervisor. The way the teams respond can vary. Generally speaking, we take personal equipment and certain things home with us. We all have take-home vehicles with personal equipment because Los Angeles County, if people don't know, is several hundred square miles. So we don't have to respond to a central location to gather equipment and then turn around and respond to another location. We do have people that go and get the armored vehicles and the bigger trucks and pieces of equipment that we need. But as far as the actual deputies responding, we can respond straight from home. And that's done for timeliness because some of these events can be rapidly evolving. Blot teams generally are called for armed barricaded suspects who are either held up in a house or a vehicle or a business and they are refusing to surrender. They're also called for any type of hostage rescue situation, which is pretty self-explanatory, but obviously somebody's being held against their will and the person is not releasing that person, we would be called to resolve something like that. We are constantly being called for serving high-risk search warrants. That is probably the majority of what we and most other SWAT teams do. When a search warrant meets a certain threshold by way of how dangerous it might be, the type of weapons that are involved, the type of criminal that's involved, if there's fortification with the house or the place that we're going to, SWAT teams will be called for that. Those are the three main reasons why most SWAT teams in the country get called out. I would say the most challenging type of call out for a SWAT team, and this is my opinion, I can't speak for everyone, hostage rescue problems tend to be the most significant and the most challenging to deal with. And the reason is actually quite simple. We are not able to dictate the direction that that situation goes in. If it's an armed barricaded suspect, it's just someone held up in a house and we have all kinds of time on our side to try to strategically figure out a way to bring that to a peaceful resolution. If it's a warrant service, we have time to pre-plan and put all of our pieces in place and come up with the best possible way to resolve that problem with, again, bringing it to a peaceful resolution, which is really what the goal is on everything we do. A hostage rescue problem, much more complicated. That particular type of incident, we do not have control, or at least not total control, over the way that operation is going to go. If the person, unfortunately, decides to inflict some sort of harm or becomes violent, it, that could happen within five minutes of us arriving. It could happen 10 hours after we arrive. And we're very limited with what we can do because the main goal of that problem is to 
safely extract those hostages from that problem. We do not plan those problems for the apprehension of the suspect. We plan out those problems for the safe security of the hostage. One of the more significant things that I remember uh, when I was working on the SWAT side of where I work, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon. We had gone in. We were the PM shift early morning team, which basically meant we were working four in the afternoon until about four o'clock in the morning. I was pretty new. Um, I had been there about a year. For the first year, you're really kind of just learning the job. You don't get a lot of positions of significance, if you will, if it can be helped. They try to kind of ease you into the job. And it was about 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and we were at this abandoned building that we were using for training, and we got a phone call from our desk indicating that one of the sheriff stations down in the South Los Angeles area uh, was handling something that was very much probably going to be requesting us. What they had was a husband had unfortunately shot his wife, left her out in the front yard with multiple gunshot wounds, and was holding himself in his house with their 18-month-old daughter. And we immediately went from, you know, just a routine night of just doing some training before we figured out what we were going to do next to piling into our cars and code three uh, roll from our training site to the target site. And again, like I said, I'd only been on about a year. I'd had pretty decent amount of exposure to some stuff. And I found myself one minute doing a normal training night to uh, the next thing I knew about 20 minutes later, I was basically outside this person's front door area along with the rest of my team because we were the first ones there, closest ones there. We had formed what we call a crisis entry team, which is a team that is put in place during hostage situations. In the event that something goes terribly wrong, you have to have a way to intervene somehow. So. Uh, one of our first priorities during a hostage problem like that is to formulate a crisis team so that if something, God forbid, goes bad, we are prepared to do some sort of intervention. We had placed an explosive charge on the door in order to gain access to the house if we had to. And that problem probably went on for the better part of maybe two or three more hours until it was eventually resolved. The little girl was unharmed and, and everything turned out okay. But it's not a daily occurrence, but it's something that you need to mentally prepare yourself. If you're going to go into a job like this, you can flick that switch. It's that fast. There was an incident that was televised heavily on the news. It was at a barbecue restaurant in the city of Downey. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was just up in my room getting ready to, you know, call it a night. You know, we had been working all day. It was probably 8, 
had to get up in the morning and go back to work. And I was just watching the news and uh, all of a sudden they kind of broke out of the show. And it was this live shot of this person running down the street, shooting a gun up towards uh, the police helicopters. And next thing you know, he goes into this barbecue place and, you know, several people come pouring out. And before I even got a phone call, before I even finished watching the news, I was already downstairs in my car. I was dressed and driving. It took me about 45 minutes to get from where I live to where the situation was unfolding. And by the time I got there, I had pulled in, parked my car, and the situation had come to a resolution, we'll say. So that particular problem was 45 minutes from start to finish. And within that 45 minutes, probably 40 to 45 of us were showing up randomly from all of us coming in from home. It was a very fluid situation. It was rapidly evolving. There were multiple hostages involved. He was obviously a had a propensity for violence. He had already shot it out with the police. He was shooting at the helicopters. And th that was one of those hostage situations that it could have gone 10 hours, but this particular one lasted about 45 minutes from start to finish. It was very fast. One of the things the Sheriff's Department SWAT team has that is unique to almost all other teams in the country is we have full-time paramedics assigned to our SWAT team. And that is what I do now. You can't become a paramedic for the SWAT team in Los Angeles County unless you're already on the SWAT team. My primary role is a paramedic for the SWAT team, and most people would refer to me as a tactical medic. That is my primary function. But because luckily, fortunately for us, our tactical incidents very rarely, very rarely result in any injuries. That's the way we design them to keep everyone safe. So we don't get a lot of contact with patients as a tactical medic. So in addition to being a medic for the SWAT team, during the hours of daylight, we have a helicopter, Air Rescue 5, which patrols the Angeles National Forest along with LA County Fire helicopter paramedics. On a daily basis, we have a helicopter that's based up in the mountains and we respond to motorcycle crashes, hiking injuries, vehicles that have driven off the road and are over the side of the mountain and they're inaccessible by ground. So our helicopter has hoisting capability. So on a daily basis, we will be flying up into the mountain area and responding to any kind of injury that would take a ground unit too long to get to and the transport time to a trauma center would be too long. So we'll just fly over, um, they'll hoist me and my medic partner in, we'll find the patient, render whatever medical attention we can, depending on the terrain and the types of injuries that we're dealing with, and then we'll 
package up the patient, hoist them back up into the helicopter, and then fly off to uh, whatever emergency room is the closest one that we can get to that has a helicopter pad. So as a medic for the sheriff's department, my job is basically twofold. My primary responsibilities, tactical medic for the SWAT team and helicopter medic for any incidents that occur that would be too difficult for a ground unit to access. And the helicopter is what keeps our medical skills up to par, if you will. Most of the calls that we get are trauma. It might not be gunshot trauma, but it's still trauma. Massive bleeds, broken bones, head injuries, things like that. On one particular morning, we got a phone call that we were requested to go out to this mountain area. There was an electrical worker who worked for one of the big electric companies out here in California. They were setting power poles up in the mountains. When they're traversing long spans of mountain area with these power lines, they use their own helicopters to basically set the poles, and it's a whole procedure that they go through. We got a call that one of those workers was injured. He fell off the pole. You don't get a lot of information. It was just somebody was hurt, somebody fell. It was an inaccessible area, and we were being requested. So we flew in, we did a couple of orbits, and we could see that not only had he fallen, but the pole was on top of him. And immediately it was, I wasn't sure if the pole was de-energized. I wasn't sure how heavy it was. There was a couple of his coworkers down there. So I ended up getting hoisted down first. My partner came down second. And immediately on making contact with the patient, you could see that he was not in a good place. He was altered. His breathing was very labored. He had several broken bone type of injuries going on. And he was still under the pole, but not necessarily stuck under it, but we had to figure out a way to negotiate him out from under that pole. The workers confirmed that it was de-energized, so we basically pushed the pole as far off of him as we could. We were able to slide him out. I made the decision at that point that it was probably not a good idea to try to do interventions right there. Uh, Most of the injuries that I thought he was suffering from were internal because I couldn't see any massive bleeds, but his physical condition and his mental condition led me to believe that what he had going on was going to require a trauma surgeon, basically. I was going to do as much as I could, but we needed to get him out. We loaded him up as quick as we could, uh, immobilized him, put him on a backboard, traversed him up this mountain a little ways to where the helicopter was able to actually land, loaded him up, and then flew him off to the trauma center. We were able to, you know, perform enough interventions and basically maintain his airway and keep his blood pressure up. And he was good at the point where we dropped him off, but I really had no idea whether he was going to survive or not. So... My brother worked for the same company that this patient works for. My brother's a electrical worker as well. So he knew him. So I had this kind of indirect connection to the patient that I didn't realize at the time. But because my brother knew him, it was very easy for me to do follow-up and figure out 
to see how he was doing, if he was progressing and so on and so forth. But he ended up up in Northern California going through a lot of rehab, but he actually made a full recovery. And my partner and I were nominated for a life-saving award by California EMS. And we were flown up to San Francisco a few months ago to receive that award for that particular incident. It was nice to be recognized. I mean, we do it every day and most people don't even know that we're doing it. But in that particular case, I think enough people kind of knew what had gone on and there was some follow-up with it and, and things like that. So they ended up choosing that particular incident to be the life-saving award for that year, which was nice. When I'm asked the question, what would you do if you were thinking about going into a career in law enforcement now that I have all of this, I guess, life experience? My daughters are 21 and 19, and all of their friends are at that age that I was when I went into law enforcement. So a lot of their friends, boys and girls both, ask me, you know, tell me about your job. They all know that I'm this helicopter SWAT guy. So it's very, you know, exciting for them kind of thing. So I'm very careful when I try to explain or give advice to them because I don't want to mislead anyone. So the way I kind of present that information to any of my kids' friends or anyone that asks me is you need to look at what you plan on doing later in your career. And by that, I mean if you're planning on going into a career in law enforcement and your personality or your goals that you see for yourself in the future are hypothetically to do what I do, you want to eventually become a SWAT guy that flies around in a helicopter. You need to choose a department that supports what it is you ultimately want to do. Every police department and sheriff's department in the country is going to have a patrol unit or a jail unit. A lot of them are going to have, you know, your basic functions that police departments have to have. But if your goal is to be something specific, you want to be a helicopter pilot or you want to be a homicide investigator or you want to be a helicopter medic or whatever it might be, you need to do your diligence in researching what these departments have to offer. Most young people that I talk to, they've already made the decision that they want to go into the field of law enforcement, but not a lot of them look at the long term, where do I see myself in 15 years? Because you're not going to drive a, a radio car around for 30 years. I mean, you could, but it's unlikely. So the advice that I usually give for anyone that wants to go into law enforcement is if you've made the decision that that's what you want to do, now you should try to do your research and find out if the department you're testing for offers what you think you may eventually want to do further down the road. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Thanks for listening.